Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 19. We're going to take up verses 28 through 44 in this audio. These verses will describe the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before, the Sunday of Passion Week, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. Now, we have just finished with Jesus at the very end of his Perean ministry. He was at Jericho on his way to Jerusalem in order to be crucified. And at Jericho, he saw Zacchaeus and got him saved, the little short tax collector in the fig tree. Jesus gave the parable of the pounds. And so that brings us here to where we are the Friday before Palm Sunday. Now, Luke picks up the story in on Palm Sunday. John, the Gospel of John, has some intermediate details, in John, according to Robertson's Harmony. In John 11:55 through John 12:1 and John 12:9 through 11, we have Jesus showing up at Bethany and seeing his friends there, Lazarus and Mary and Martha and so forth. And that's where he's staying during Passion Week on Palm Sunday, he leaves Bethany and makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that Sunday, and then he comes back, and this is what he does every day. He, he goes into Jerusalem and comes back to Bethany. So we're going to take, we're going to describe the events of this first entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the so-called triumphal in, entry. And I've already discussed this actually in parallel passages. This entry is described in all four Gospels. The discussion that is the most full that I have done is in Mark 11, starting with verse 1. So I am going to splice that audio in here, and that will cover the triumphal entry. So that splice begins now. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 11. We're going to do the first 11 verses, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before he was crucified on Friday. Now, the context of this, he's just come down from Jericho at the end of his Perean ministry. He has healed blind Bartimaeus and his companion. That's recorded in Mark. And not recorded in Mark are the, is the giving of the parable of the pounds and the calling of Zacchaeus from the tree, the sycamore tree, I think it is. So now we are here as Jesus is arriving in Bethany, and this occurred right before the triumphal entry and recorded in the book of John are some incidents which we don't have in Mark, namely the, and the most important of which is the rising of Lazarus from the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, there are four parallel passages that describe the triumphal entry, and so I've got a lot of harmonizing to do and a lot of, a lot of ground to cover. Well, I'm going to take into account all four passages in Mark 11, Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 12. So let's start with Mark 11, starting with verses 1 and 2. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Bethpage means house of figs. Bethany some people say John Gill speculates means house of dates, referring to all the horticultural abundance on the Mount of Olives. So these two cities, these two villages are where Jesus stayed during Passion Week. Mainly, he actually stayed at Bethany, probably at the house of Mary and Martha of Bethany and their brother Lazarus. 
Now, when Jesus said, go into the village of Hitta, he's probably talking about Bethpage, which is right on the, the next to Bethany. People speculate. Wikipedia says they don't know where, nobody knows where Bethpage is. Bible Hub, the atlas, has it just further west of Bethany going toward Jerusalem on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. So anyway, we're talking about two villages right next to each other. So when Jesus tells two of his disciples, and which two of his disciples is not known, the parallels don't tell us, when he tells them to get a colt there, a young donkey, a colt, on which no one has ever sat, this is a detail that is perhaps significant because it means it's a new animal, an animal that's never been used. Now, as a matter of fact, not only the Jews, but also the ancient heathens would never use animals for religious purposes that had been used. And so this was a religious purpose, bringing Jesus as king into Jerusalem. And so therefore, it, it means something to say that no one had ever sat on him. Here's some examples in the Old Testament scriptures about unused animals being used in the sacrificial ritual. Numbers 19.2. This is the legal statute that the Lord has commanded. Instruct the Israelites to bring you an unblemished red cow that has no defect and has never been yoked. Deuteronomy 21.3. The elders of the city nearest to the victim are to get a young cow that has not been yoked to use for work. 1 Samuel 6.7. Now then prepare one new cart and two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their cows away and pin them up. This is kept carrying off the ark. So any time that anything religious was being done, unused animals were used, which means usually young animals were used. Matthew tells us that they approached Jerusalem. The they is Jesus, his disciples, and a large crowd. Many of his, of his disciples were, of course, in that crowd. Now, this is significant because... We'll see that in the triumphal entry, Jesus has people coming at his back from Jericho, who came from Jericho, and people at his front who came out to meet him from Jerusalem. A huge crowd. And remember, the crowds were swollen because this was the time of the Passover. The Passover was the coming Thursday, and this is the Friday before that Thursday. Now, where was this colt tied up? Nobody knows. Gill and the NIV Study Bible suggest that it's Bethany, the village ahead of you. That makes sense because Bethany... Excuse me, I'm sorry. Gill says Bethany, the NIV Study Bible says Bethpage. Since Bethpage is the village right next to Bethany, it could be either one. We don't know. Now, there's something interesting here in Matthew 21:11. There's two donkeys that are mentioned in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, verse 2, it says this, Saying unto them, Go into the village that is over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her, loose them and bring them unto me. All right, so there's our first harmonization task is why does Mark and Luke say one colt and Matthew say says two colts? Well, I'm going to give you a reason that Gill does to harmonize the passages, and I think he's wrong, but I'll tell you what he says. He says in order to fulfill Zechariah 9.9, Jesus would have to ride on two donkeys. And he quotes Zechariah 9.9. I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Study Bible. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it says he's riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Gil says, see, there he's right, has to ride on two. And so then 
Gill says, so Jesus rode on first on the donkey, the mama donkey, and then he rode on the colt, the baby donkey, into Jerusalem. I think that's a clumsy way to reconcile this, in my humble opinion. I think if you quote Zechariah, look at it, it says, He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey on a colt. The colt is in apposition with donkey. He is riding on a donkey, which is a colt, the foal of a donkey. Apposition is one donkey. So now the issue is, if Gil is wrong, then how would we better reconcile it? Well, I think the disciples had to take the mama donkey along with the colt because you just don't separate a colt from a donkey, a mama donkey. Because if you do, the mama donkey is going to scream and holler and kick and raise cane, and when you carry the little donkey away, he's going to turn around and instinctively go back to his mama, and he's going to give you trouble. So they had to carry both, and they just carried the mama donkey along in the procession as Jesus rode on the baby donkey. That makes more sense to me. Now, by the way, all these English translations, we have ass, we have donkey, we have colt. One time I decided to learn what the difference was between a donkey, a mule, and a henny. And I'll tell you what, it, you'd have to be a zoological expert to figure it out. I mean, I did figure it out, but I can't remember. If you want to know, just look up those words in a dictionary and you'll find out. It's not really important here. The point is, is that the baby, that's the one that Jesus wrote on. Because, again, because no one had ever sat on the baby, on the colt. Again, to show, because this is a religious thing that's happening here. Now, what did this colt symbolize? According to the NIV Study Bible, it symbolized humility. Now, I've got a problem with that. Let me read you a quote from John Gill. Their ancient governors, patriarchs, princes, and judges used to ride on asses before the introduction and multiplication of horses in Solomon's time, forbidden by the law of God. Wherefore, though this might seem mean and despicable at this present time, yet was suitable enough to Christ's character as a king and as the son of David and king of Israel, strictly observing the law given to the kings of Israel and riding in such manner as they formerly did. So Gill says that this colt symbolizes his kingship, not humility, because they didn't have horses back then, so they rode on asses. Now, to us, riding on an ass is pretty humble, but... Going back in their culture, it wasn't humble. So I got a problem with that. I think it symbolizes kingship, not humility. The NIV study Bible goes on to say that that cult symbolized peace. I don't know why a donkey would symbolize peace. Oh, when I think about a donkey, I think like, hee-haw, hee-haw. They don't seem very peaceful to me. A dove, maybe, but not a donkey. So I don't know why they say that. And the NIV study Bible also says it symbolizes Davidic royalty. Well, that's nice, but that's sort of the... Contrary to humility, I don't know how I can symbolize humility and Davidic royalty at the same time. Now, notice that Jesus told the disciples, find a donkey there and untie them. Well, now, why would, how can you just find somebody else's donkey and untie it and not have an objection from the owner of the donkey? Adam Clark says it's because Jesus divinely knew the owner would part with the animals. Or, this is my idea, maybe the owner knew that Jesus was the Messiah and would be more than willing to have his animals be ridden on by the Messiah. And perhaps Jesus knew that the owner of the colt was a disciple that was following Jesus and lived in Jerusalem. He could have known that through natural means even. And if he's a disciple, he's going to, be, he's going to, gla he's going to gladly give up his colt. Now, when did the disciples go get the donkey? Robertson says it was on that day, Palm Sunday. Adam Clark says it was a few days before the Passover. Well, which is some Palm Sunday. So it's not as precise. So this is when all this donkey getting was done on the day of 
the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. We now turn back to Mark 11, verses 3 through 6. If anyone says to you, Jesus continues, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. The Lord needs the donkey. So they went and found a young donkey outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing, untying the donkey? In other words, we don't know who you are. It looks like you're stealing the donkey. Neighborhood watch. They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. In other words, the Lord has need of it. As I said earlier, many people think the donkey owner was a follower of Jesus. So there's anyone, as somebody, some of those standing there were not necessarily the owners of the donkey. They were just people, neighbors, that were wondering why these guys were untying the donkey. And when, he, when the disciples said the Lord, the Lord will bring the donkey back right away, he's showing, look, we're not stealing the donkey. We're just borrowing it for a brief period of time. The donkey's coming back real soon. Notice that the disciples were instructed to say to any inquirer, you should say that the Lord needs them. He's openly proclaiming himself now as the Messiah. He's using a messianic name. Now, it could possibly mean God the Father there. The NIV Study Bible says, suggests that, but says that it probably probably does not mean God the Father. It means it means Jesus the Messiah needs that donkey. No more messianic secret now. Jesus is openly entering to Jerusalem as the Messiah. Now we turn over to Matthew 21, and we're going to do a section here that's not in the in either Mark, Luke, or John. We're going to look at Matthew 21. Verses four, verses 4 through 8. Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5 says this, This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell, daughter Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew says this, was, this took place so that, in other words, the purpose of this barring of the donkey was not merely to make it easy for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was only a mile away about, according to Wikipedia. It's very close. And Jesus has been walking all over Galilee, walking all the way down for Jericho. You know, it, you think about it, those disciples must have been in game shape to, to, for all the walking they did. He didn't get on that donkey because he was tired. He got that donkey because he wanted to fulfill prophecy. He explicitly wanted and purposely and intentionally wanted to fulfill this prophecy in Daniel in Zechariah 9 verse 9 and Isaiah 62 11 because verse 5 here in Matthew 21 verse 5 is a quotation from two Old Testament prophets. The first part of the verse, tell daughter Zion, look your king is coming to you, is a quote from Isaiah 62 11. Look I'm going to read that right now, Isaiah 62:11. Look, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, look, your salvation is coming. That's a direct quote, almost. And daughter Zion means daughter of Zion, which is the population of Jerusalem, the population of Zion, Zion standing for Jerusalem, as it often does. Now, the second part of Matthew 21, verse 5, is a quotation from Zechariah 9, Zechariah 9, 9, which I'll read now. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughters Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's, it's usual for Jews to quote scriptures piecemeal as you, once you start going back and reading those Old Testament quotations of the New Testament and going back and finding them in the Old Testament as I've done that. And it's amazing how often that happens. 
one piece of scripture here, a piece of scripture there. But that was their custom. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, here's an interesting question that I thought of. Here is a prediction in the Old Testament that the king is going to be gentle, mounted on a donkey. How in the world do the Jewish rabbis interpret that verse? Now, I'm not enough. I'm not. I don't know enough rabbinic literature to know that. I'm sure it could be found if I just. It's on my do list. I'm going to try to check that out. How in the world can they get around that prophecy? Because Jesus obviously fulfilled it. Going on to Matthew 21, verses 6 and 7, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their robes on them, and he sat on them. All right, so they went, and let's say it's Bethpage, they, or whatever the village was, they got the donkey and brought it back to Bethany where Jesus was, and they laid the robes on them, that's on the mama donkey and the baby donkey, and he sat on them. He sat on the robes, of course, that were on the baby donkey. Adam Clark agrees with me on this and disagreeing with Gill that he, that Jesus sat successive, successively upon the two donkeys. He, Clark says this, we, we can scarcely suppose that he rode upon both by turns. This would appear childish or that he rode upon... And we can't suppose either, says Clark, that he wrote upon both of them at once. Well, that would be absurd. So, you know, the answer is he wrote on one because when it says in Zechariah they brought the donkey and the colt and they laid the robes on them, it doesn't say he sat on both of them. When it says he sat on them, it means he sat on the robes, not the donkeys. Now, what's this idea of putting donkeys, uh, excuse me, putting robes on a donkey under a king? Doing that, putting a robe under someone acknowledged him to be the, a king as John Gill and the, my NIV Study Bible point out. Here's an example, and the NIV Study Bible quotes this verse as an example. 2 Kings 9.13, and so does Gill. 2 Kings 9.13, Each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So when you see a garment under somebody being placed under somebody, that means you are king. Matthew 21, verse 8, a very large crowd spread their robes on the road. And remember, putting a garment under somebody is making them king. So the crowd put their robes on the road upon which Jesus was walking. Where are these crowds? Remember, I said earlier, there were two sources of that crowd. There were those that followed Jesus from Jericho. And there were those that came up from Jerusalem. We'll see later in the book of John that a lot of people who came up from Jerusalem did so because they had seen Lazarus resurrected from the dead and become believers because of that. And they went back to Jerusalem and they came back out to meet Jesus again. The putting the robes on the robe, on the road, is a confession of Jesus' kingship, as I just said, and the NIV study Bible and Gill agree. Now, the cutting of the branches, John Gill says that the Jews did that on any occasion of joy. Not just the Feast of Tabernacles, of course, the Feast of Booze, when they, they had the citron Lutron, I can't remember all those branches they had with the lemons on it, you know, I mean the uh, citrus fruit on it, uh, and they would they would cut those branches down and wave them around and, build, and put them on their booze, and it was, it was a time of joy. That was a time of joy, but any time you cut down branches and waved them around, that was a, a symbol of joy. These were palm trees, by the way, that they cut the branches down. We've learned from John 12, 3, 13, it says they took palm branches and went out to meet him. All right, so there's palm branches being waved around. Now, palm branches is kind of special because in Revelation 7, 9, we read this. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This is the church, people in the new covenant, people that are born again, which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches. That's a symbol of victory, by the way. 
joy and victory. So even as the new covenant believers have palm branches in the hand and John's vision and revelation, so the people of Jerusalem had palm branches in their hand as the Messiah entered into the capital city of Jerusalem. Now one other small point, it said that the crowd spread their robes on the road. That preposition, of course, is, as most Greek prepositions are, a little bit ambiguous. It doesn't mean in the dead center of the road, according to John Gill, because that would have hindered Jesus' riding, but they put the robes on the sides of the road. I'm not so sure of that. I don't know why it would hinder anybody. Put the robe in the middle of the road, Jesus could walk, walk that donkey right on top of the road. And I don't think the people would have cared too much. They were so excited, they wouldn't have cared that they lost their robe. All right, Matthew 21, 9. Well, actually, uh, yeah, we'll go on to 21, 9 here. No, I take that back. We're going to drop back to Mark 11, verse 7, and I'll read from there. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw the robes on it, as I've just said, and he sat on it. Many people spread their robes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Kind of got ahead of myself and Matthew there. Mark 11, verse 9, Then those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! In other words, Jesus was surrounded by the crowds in front and the crowds behind. Probably the people who came behind were the ones who had followed from Jericho, and the ones who went ahead are those who came out and met him from Jerusalem, although it doesn't say that. They were yelling, Hosanna! Hosanna means save, save! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven! And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now notice in verse 10 in Mark 11, the crowd shouted, The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. That's kind of unusual because usually people call Jesus the son of David. And in fact, he was called the son of David in the Matthew parallel here. It's more usual for Jews to call Abraham their father. The reason they call Jesus uh, David father here is because the Messiah was David's son. And so the Messiah's father, David, was blessed because of his son, the Messiah. So they called David father because David was the father or the ancestor of the Messiah, who they were now proclaiming. You notice how Jesus looked around. This is still on Sunday, right before he left. He looked at everything since it was already late. He looked at everything, and what did he say? Well, you know... Money changers, animals running around. He threw out the. He came back the next day to clean up the temple. We'll see that in a later audio. This is Palm Sunday before that. We're assuming Robertson's harmony chronology is accurate, and I do. Why did he leave the city and not stay there when he went back to Bethany? Well, I don't think that staying in the city would be safe. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this, It was not now safe for the Lord to sleep in the city, nor from the day of his triumphal entry did he pass one night in it, save the last fatal one. So Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night was back at Bethany with the with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, most probably. Thursday night, of course, was the night he stayed up all night in the Garden of Gethsemane and got arrested. A couple of other points before we move over to Matthew. It says the palm branches were cut in the fields. And in Matthew, it says the branches were cut from the trees. I assume the trees were in the fields on the side of the road. Minor point. And the psalm that was quoted from when the crowd was saying, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's in Psalms 118, verses 25 through 26. Let's take a closer look at the meaning of this word, Hosanna. The NIV has a note that says, 
Hosanna is a Hebrew expression meaning save, which became an explanation of praise. It has an idea of both prayer and praise, according to the NIV Study Bible. Now, these three phrases that were shouted, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, Hosanna to the highest heaven, they're not necessarily spoken at the same time as a crowd. One might be speaking one, one might be saying one, and one might be saying the other. Now, as I mentioned, the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is from Psalms 118, verse 26. This is a Hallel psalm, a praise psalm. These Hallel psalms were traditionally sung at Passover time. So shouting this psalm at this time was quite appropriate, as the NIV Study Bible says. And as far as the Hosanna, here's a quote from Adam Clark. When persons applied to the king for help or for a redress of grievances, they used the word Hosanna, or rather from the Hebrew, Hoshayana, save now, or save we beseech thee. Redress our grievances and give us help from oppression. So when the people were saying Hosanna, they were saying, free us from oppression, Messiah. That idea is not far away. The Jews were pretty much of an, an oppressed people. Now we're going to switch over to the parallel passages in Luke chapter 19 uh, for several verses because Luke adds a lot of stuff that the other three Gospels don't have. Luke 19 verse 36, as he was going along, Jesus they were spreading their robes on the road. Now, that they is probably the disciples, the, the excuse me, the crowd, the 12 disciples had already put their robes on the colt already. So this is probably the rest of the crowd were putting their robes on the road. It says, Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives in verse 37, and that means that all this shouting Hosanna and waving the palm branches was not done in Jerusalem proper. It was done outside of Jerusalem coming down the Mount of Olives contrary to a lot of those pictures you saw in Sunday school. The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. For example, the, raise, the resurrection of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, which had just happened a few days before, as well as all the, all the healing miracles and the exorcisms. Moving on to Luke 19, verse 38, Luke says this, The king who comes in the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, why would the crowd be saying peace in heaven? Well, of course, there's already peace in heaven. Why would you say, may there be peace in heaven? Here's a couple of options, according to John Gill. First option, the crowd could have meant that all heavenly peace and prosperity should attend the Messiah. In other words, the peace that's in heaven, may that peace be here in his messianic kingdom. Or it could mean let peace be made with the God of heaven. He's not angry with us anymore because the Messiah, he has sent his Messiah to us. I'm not sure what the crowd was saying there. I tend to think it's the first option, that it's all the peace that's in heaven, may it now be here. And then the crowd says, glory in the highest heaven. In other words, may glory be given to God who lives in the highest heaven. They had three heavens back then. The, the sky, which is the first heaven. The second heaven was outer space. And the third heaven was spiritual, the heaven where God lives. I suspect that's what they were talking about there. Here's some options on what the word highest means. I just gave you one option that is referring to heaven as opposed to outer space and the sky. That's my idea, which just occurred to me. It's not even in my notes. But... It could also mean, may those in heaven sing Hosanna. In other words, Hosanna in the highest heaven. In other words, 
May those who are way up there in heaven, in high heaven, may they sing Hosanna. This is the NIV Study Bible in Adam Clark's view. Here's some examples of backing up that view. Example scripture, Psalms 148, verses 1 through 2. Hallelujah, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Heavens, high. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. So all the angels in heaven. Praise him way up there in heaven. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people his favor. We move on to Luke 19 verses 39 through 40. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. The Pharisees, what were they doing there? Well, they had placed themselves in the crowd looking for a charge against Jesus. And they said, Teacher, I rebuke your disciples. Why? Merely because they're saying that I'm the Messiah? Well, because the Pharisees hated Jesus, they couldn't stand to hear him proclaimed as Messiah. Jesus said the stones would cry out if I rebuked them and made them keep quiet. The stones would cry out. What would they cry out? Well, they could be crying out against the Pharisees, or they could be crying out in a declaration of the Messiah, which is, I think, what Jesus was talking about. You're not going to shut this crowd up, and you don't ask me to shut them up, Pharisees. Now, before Jesus had discouraged all demonstrations in his favor, as the Messiah, but now he's encouraging those demonstrations because his time for crucifixion had come. He wanted the world to know who he was and what the Jews were getting ready to do to him. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. As he approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you, when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone or another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, I like this passage because it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, which is the next Tuesday. This is Sunday, so Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, three the day after the next two days later, he was going to preach the same thing to the disciples. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 24, which of course is the famous Olivet Discourse, which most people take as referring to the end of the world. It does not. It refers to the destruction of Jerusalem. And here you see it right here. He says, the days will come when your enemies will, enemies will build an embankment against you. That's the siege walls that the Romans built in AD 70. They will surround you. That's exactly what the Romans did in 87, well, 8067, 66 and a half through 8070. And him you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground. That's exactly what the Romans did in 8070. They will not leave one stone or another in you. Isn't that what Jesus predicted in Matthew 24? Oh, you see this great temple, disciples. Guess what? Not one stone is going to be left one on another. And when will all these things take place? The disciples asked. And Jesus answered, no. This generation will not pass away before all these things happen. It's not talking about the end of the world. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Why is the temple not going to have one stone left on another? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Who's visited Israel or Jerusalem with good news of salvation? Well, how about John the Baptist? How about Jesus? How about all the prophets? They didn't listen. Full of evil. By the way, here's another good scripture. This is the Luke version of the Olivet Discourse that fulfills what Jesus is saying here on Palm Sunday. It says that the army, your enemies, will build an embankment against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Luke 21, 20 says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. 
How could anyone miss this? This is talking about the destruction of Israel in AD 70. All of this, all of that discourse and this too. Why was it hidden? Why did Jesus say that peace is now, excuse me, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes? Why was it hidden from their eyes that the Messiah would bring peace to Jerusalem? Well, it was their own fault. You know, you could deliberately shake your fist at God and blaspheme him and do all that kind of stuff. You're going to get your eyes blinded. Not God's fault. It wasn't arbitrary. It was their fault. Notice that Jesus wept uh, as he approached as he approached Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He wept because he knew what was coming. He knew they were going to kill him and bring judgment on themselves and that they were going to be destroyed in AD 70. He knew that and he cried. He was fully human. We should never have schadenfreude. Is that the German word? Schadenfreude, which is happiness over your enemy's downfall. Jesus never had that. That is a, that's an ungodly. You should never jump up and down and, and glee when somebody's capitally executed. I believe in capital punishment. But I don't believe in jumping up and down and saying, hey, fry him. No, uh-uh. Justice has been done, but it's a sad thing that it had to be done. Likewise, justice is going to be done on these Jews in Jerusalem. But it's going to be a sad thing, not something to be jumping and down in joy about. Now, notice when Jesus said, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? He's probably making a reference to the city of Jerusalem's name. Jerusalem means peace or he shall see peace, something like that. And so ironic that the city that's named peace rejects the very Messiah who's going to bring peace. All right. Now we're going to go to John Chapter 12, starting with verse 16, as we pick up a few more details and we'll shut it down. John 12, verse 16 says this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. What things? All this all this stuff about people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, your king is coming, seated on the foal of a donkey. They didn't understand all that at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, that means when he was resurrected and come back from the dead and had his glorified body, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Notice that not only did they understand the written prophecies about Jesus coming in, riding on a colt, as in Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah 11.12, I think it is, Isaiah 11. Not only did they remember that, but also the things they had done to him, which included the crucifixion, Isaiah 53. A lot of the Bible comes clear after some history has passed. That's a clue for all of you who would like to understand the Olivet Discourse. Now that that history has passed, all of that discourse becomes a lot easier to read and understand than it is if you try to force it to mean that it refers to something in the long-off future when you're subject to the whims of theological speculation. It is only in the light of the new covenant that the old covenant can be understood. That's a key, key interpretive principle. The disciples had to learn it. They couldn't understand what was going on, and they were right there in the middle of it. They had, to they had to get into the church. They had to have the Holy Spirit fall on them at Pentecost, and they had to have revelation. They had to read the letters of the Apostle Paul. They had to wait a little bit so that they could understand the Old Covenant. They had to use the New Covenant to understand the Old Covenant. And since I'm into New Covenant theology, that's one of the clarion calls of New Covenant theology, so I would suggest that we do the same thing. Try to understand the Old Covenant in terms of the New Covenant. John 12, verses 17 through 19. We'll do these three verses and we'll shut it down. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, that had happened a few days before this, 
They continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. In other words, the Jews came out to Bethany, saw that Lazarus had risen from the dead. They heard the story there. They went back and told everybody in the city. They might have also been working on the pilgrims coming from outside the city, and including that crowd that came down from Jericho with Jesus. They were all saying, man, did you see what happened? He raised Lazarus from the dead, which John calls a sign. John's big on signs. I like John. I like him pointing out miracles or signposts to heaven. The Pharisees listened to all the people proclaiming him Messiah and the people testifying that he raised Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead. Verse 19, then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And thank God the world has gone after him. What have they accomplished? What had they done? John Gill points out that they had enjoined people not to follow Jesus. They had tried to arrest Jesus. They threatened people that they would be put out of, the, out of the synagogue if people confessed him. They promised for rewards for people to say where he was. It hadn't done a bit of good. The people still following him. All right, as I said, Mark, they went back to Bethany that night after Jesus looked around, saw the mess, <laughs> the crapola that's going on inside the temple, the selling of the sacrificial animals, the, the money changing and so forth. He goes back to Bethany to spend the night. He's coming back the next day to do some heavy lifting. When he gets back to Jerusalem, he turns those tables over, and he's going to do some other stuff too, some teaching. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have now returned from my splice of my discussion of the triumphal entry in the book of Mark, which covers what happens here in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44 perfectly. And so we'll shut this audio down. Next audio we will talk about the cleansing of the temple during another day of Passion Week. I hope you enjoyed this audio.